Now, if you're a guest of ours in the room or online or in Williamsburg or Somerset or Middlesboro, um, this is the fourth week of the series that we're called Reason. We're calling Reason because it's all about finding reasonable faith in the face of doubt. And this entire series is inspired by one particular verse of scripture. And I hope it's a verse that you'll jot down. I hope it's a verse that you will look at and think about because everything that we're talking about in this series is really out of this one particular passage that the apostle Peter, uh, he picked up his pen and this is what he said to Christians in the first century. He said, always be prepared. And in any type of preparation includes a little bit of effort, a little bit of time, a little bit of thought and a whole lot of intention. So he's talking to Christians and he says, always be prepared. Prepared to do what, Peter? To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So Peter says, okay, let me give you some good advice. He says, as Christians, it's really important that you know why you believe what you believe. It's just not important to know what you believe, uh, but it's even more important to know why you believe what you believe because sooner or later, whether it's your son or whether it's your daughter, whether it's your grandson or granddaughter, whether it's a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, someone that you're in a conversation with who knows you're a Christian and they're gonna know enough about Christianity to know what you believe, but they're not convinced themselves, so they wanna know why you believe what you believe. Peter says, be ready, be prepared to have an answer. So what that requires is that we think about these things ahead of time that we ask these things ahead of time so that we know ourselves why it is that we believe what we believe. So that when someone else says, tell me why, why are you a Christian? Why do you follow Jesus? Why do you have hope? Even when things are so bleak, why do you have hope beyond this life? Why do you believe this stuff? Then you'll be prepared to give an answer because here's what Peter's saying. It's completely reasonable for your non-Christian friends, your non-Christian family. It's completely reasonable for them to want reasons to believe what you believe. It's completely reasonable for somebody to say, hey, tell me why you believe what you believe. I wanna understand it. I wanna know if it's compelling. I wanna know if it's reasonable for me to believe what you believe. And in that, Peter's saying, listen, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your faith should be a reasonable faith. Your faith should be a faith that has reason to it, that you know why you believe what you believe and why you believe what you believe is reasonable. It's not illogical, it's logical. It's not out there behind the left field fence, it's actually sensible, it makes sense. And so, you know, living in the day where somebody says, hey, tell me why you believe what you believe, and you say, well, I believe it because the Bible says so. Well. That's not a very good answer, and especially not a good answer if you're a parent. It's not a good answer if it's talking to the next generation because the problem is the Bible says so many things to so many different people. And to say, I just believe what the Bible says, and besides that, I'm convinced that most people who says, I believe everything that's in the Bible, they have not read everything in the Bible. It's like, hey, I believe every word of the Bible. Have you read every word of the Bible? Oh, no, but I believe every word of the Bible. I mean, what kind of person does that? An unreasonable person. So Peter calls us to have a reasonable faith. And so we shouldn't be careless with our beliefs. Uh, we shouldn't be carelessly dogmatic about our beliefs or our interpretations. We want to have reasonable reasons of why we believe what we believe. And this is really important to me. And, and it's something that I'm absolutely convinced is a big deal. Um, and that's why we talked about two weeks ago, why we believe that God exists. 
if God exists and we believe that he does, why do we believe that? And we talked about that. So if you weren't here, you can go back, you can check that out. And then the logical consequence of believing that God exists says, I believe that miracles are possible. If God exists, then miracles are possible. So why do I believe the miraculous things or miracles are possible or there's a capacity for miracles in this life? Why do I believe that it's possible that the miracles that are written in scripture could have actually happened? Because I believe that God exists. And I believe that God exists for reasons, reasonable reasons. And if God exists, then miracles are possible. So this is the logical sequence of our faith. This is why we believe what we believe. And besides that, this is a really big deal today because today is not like a sermon. Uh, we, we thought that it would be such an important thing that, you know, in the middle of this series to take a week and allow you to ask the questions and allow our church, both here in London, Williamsburg, Somerset, Middlesbrough, to let our church determine kind of what we talk about to find out what you're curious about and, and to be able, one, to model how to have conversations about this and to just be honest about, hey, here's some curiosities that we have, let's talk about them. And not all of them are of the utmost importance, but all of them are questions to be taken seriously. So that's what we're gonna do today. So next week, we're gonna be back in the swing of things, but today I'm gonna take time to take your questions and I'm going to do my best to answer them. and. And I think that this is a big deal because if nothing else, Wednesday night, I had the opportunity to go hang out with our students and uh, it was Q&A with the students. And I'm telling you, you've never been in the hot seat until you've sat in front of a room full of teenagers with their questions because they don't hold back. And uh, Ethan and Dylan were there to you know, kind of throw me a lifeline in case I needed it, but we had a blast. And then after the service was over, I guess I, I stayed in front and we talked about more questions for another 45 minutes to an hour. And then some of my friends down here on the front, uh, they invited me to go to upper class uh, hangout time at Taco Bell at 9.30 at night. And I have never eaten Taco Bell in my life and I, that was not gonna be the first time at 9.30 at night, I'll tell you that. I would have dreamed dreams and had visions, but I went and sat down and we talked and we had fun and we talked more questions. So here's the thing I want you to know, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, there is a thirst and a hunger among the next generation to talk about these things that matter, to have conversations, thoughtful conversations, maybe more so than sometimes we give credit for. So question number one, here we go. We'll just jump right into it. <clears throat> Since Lazarus was such a big deal, why didn't Matthew, Mark, or Luke mention it? Uh, now, I've bounced this question off of a couple of people the last few days just to, just to see what other people would say if, if someone asked them. And more times than not, I get this response. I've never thought about that. But they don't, do they? No, Matthew, Mark, Luke doesn't record the miracle of Lazarus. Now, just so that we're all on the same page, when, when we read the Gospel of John, as we talked about, John, John has a very specific way of telling the story of Jesus uh, that is a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and I wanna try to pull out just a little bit and, and tease this question out to help us think about this in a way that if someone asks us about it, because at the heart of this is a little bit of an insinuation. Uh, people of no faith or people of suspicious faith or skeptical type of perspective, uh, oftentimes they will use this as a means of saying, 
if Lazarus really happened, if that was a real deal, don't you think that Matthew, Mark, Luke would have recorded it? Don't you think if you would have been there and you would have saw that happen, that you would have wrote it down? And the idea being that if Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't write it down, then it's because it didn't happen and the gospel of John just fabricated the whole thing. But in the gospel of John, as we talked about last week, John had seven miracles that he wanted to put front and center when it came to the life of Jesus to say, these miracles lead us to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, which was the son of God and the Messiah, the savior of the world. But in that, he also talks about seven I am, I am statements. And so he has a very, you know, a very specific structure that he keeps throughout the gospel of John. But here's the thing that I want us to understand. That when it comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are four very different people with four very different perspectives and four very different experiences and four different agendas that they want to accomplish as they write their biography of Jesus. Now, Matthew was a tax collector who was invited to follow Jesus. And so he's got all of that background behind him. And so Matthew writes his gospel to Jewish people because he is a Jewish person. He was kicked out of the Jewish religious system. And so he wants to speak to Jewish people and convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So he begins Matthew chapter one, verse one, in a way that we would expect him to. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Because if you're gonna convince a Jewish person that Jesus is the Messiah, the first thing you have to do is prove that he's a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. Because Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that one of his future descendants would one day bless the world. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that one day one of his future sons would rule over a kingdom that would never end. So Matthew, it makes perfect sense. So all throughout his gospel, you'll find that Matthew does things like this. This happened to fulfill the words of the prophet when the prophet Isaiah said, or this happened so that the prophecy was fulfilled. And again, he pointed people back to the Old Testament scripture because if you're Jewish, you care about the Old Testament scripture, you care about is the Messiah, the supposed Messiah, is he indeed a descendant of Abraham and David? So that's how Matthew begins. Mark, Mark begins with, there's a voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, and then it's off to the races. And so Mark, if you've not read through the gospel of Mark, it's the shortest of the four. Most people believe that Mark got his information from Peter. So it's really almost like the Peter, you know, the, the gospel according to Peter, but told by Mark. So Mark interviewed Peter and then he wrote it down. But all throughout Mark, there's this suspense. And, and it's like Jesus heals a person, but then looks at him and says, don't tell anybody who did it. You know, Jesus performs another miracle and says, don't tell anybody who did it. So there's this suspense motif all the way through Mark. It's like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Then Luke comes around and Luke says, okay, I have carefully investigated all of this. And, and he writes in classical high Greek. He, he's obviously the most educated of the four gospel writers. And so he writes a prologue that was very common to Hellenistic language and, and Greco-Roman literature. He, and he says, I have carefully, carefully, carefully investigated all of this. And I've wrote it down in a sequential logical order so that you most excellent Theophilus may know the certainty of these things which happened. And so he writes kind of a defense uh, of Jesus. He, he wants to give a linear, logical, reasonable telling of the life and the story of Jesus. But John comes along and he starts with his prologue and says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God 
and the word was God. And so he begins with this big theological perspective. And so he tells a very different story. So all of the four gospels, they have a different perspective. Now, if you've ever read, uh, say, you know, I've read different autobiographies, or not autobiographies, but biographies of Abraham Lincoln. And, and if you read three or four biographies about the same person from different people, you'll find that they record certain things and others will decide to leave it out. They'll, they'll get the big things, but some of the other details they'll have a different take on. They'll have a different perspective about. They'll, they'll draw different conclusions. You know, but everybody in the biography of Lincoln talks about his assassination. Well, all four gospel writers write about the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the voice of Jesus, his teaching, sounds the same in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not like, it's like one Jesus in Matthew and a totally different sounding Jesus in Luke. They're all very complementary of each other. Uh, and all of the gospels come together not to give us a restricted view of Jesus, but a much more rich and deep view of Jesus. So you say, well, what does that got to do with the question at hand? Because they're all writing from a different perspective. So John, he talks about the water that was turned to wine in John 2, but nobody else writes about it. In John 4, he writes about the woman at the well. Nobody else writes about that either. In John chapter 5, he writes about, you know, other things that none of the other gospel writers wrote about specifically. Uh, the man born blind, only in the gospel of John. And then again in John 11, Lazarus. But John used Lazarus as a tipping point. It was the tipping point of when the religious establishment decided to put Jesus to death because they were convinced in that moment, oh my goodness, he has raised a man who has been dead for four days. We are gonna lose our temple. We're gonna lose our nation. So we've gotta do something about him. And so they decided that day to put Jesus to death, but also in John 11, and this is important, they also wanted to put Lazarus to death because Jesus has been gaining popularity and now all of a sudden, perhaps Jesus has performed one of his most impressive miracles. He's raised a, a man who's been dead for four days back to life and they don't want this man telling his story. And it's like, hey, who are you? Lazarus, tell me your story. Well, I was dead a few days ago. Oh, really? What happened? Well, I was raised. By who? Jesus. Well, tell me more. You know, and it's like, you know, they kind of just like, we don't want this guy out there talking either. So they decided that day to take Jesus's life and they also wanted to put Lazarus to death as well. You say, what, what does this have to do with the question? Well, why didn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the story of Lazarus? It could have just been that they wanted to tell a different story and the story that they wanted to tell the way they wanted to tell it didn't involve Lazarus. Because for John, it was the zenith. It was the seventh miracle. It was the moment that set everything into action. It was the tipping point. So maybe they just decided they didn't want to put it in there. There's also a theory that I don't subscribe to, but it's a theory nonetheless. I don't think it flies. I don't even think it gets off the ground. But some people say that the fourth gospel, the gospel that we call John, was actually written by Lazarus. Because in John 11, it says, Jesus, you need to come quick because the disciple whom you love, the friend whom you love is sick. And then after John 11, there are references to the person that Jesus loved, but it refers back to the author. So some people say, well, maybe Lazarus actually wrote about it. And since it was Lazarus, of course he would include it in his story. But it seems to be pretty clear that John is the author of not only the gospel of John, but also first, second, and third John, because there's the similar metaphor of light and darkness and love and hate that, that he uses throughout all of his writings. So I don't think that the, the authorship of John is up for debate. What seems to be the most intriguing theory 
is this, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospels first, and we know that they did. John was written a few years after the other three gospels. And so some people believe and some people theorize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't write about Lazarus in order to protect him. That the temple authorities uh, still wanted to put him to death so they didn't wanna put a bigger target on his back. So they left him out. And then in between Matthew, Mark, and Luke being written, which we call the synoptic gospels, in between the synoptic gospels and John, Lazarus died a second time because he wasn't raised to die no more, but once he was raised, he died again and that he had died before the gospel of John was written. And so John felt a bit more freedom to tell the story of Lazarus with such detail because Lazarus wasn't threatened by the authorities anymore. Now, I think that 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 could be plausible, it's reasonable, but the true answer to this question is, I don't know for sure. Uh, and, and if anybody tells you they know for sure, uh, that, that would be just a lie. But it seems to be very reasonable to me that maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke were protecting Lazarus. And then after he died, John decided, I think I can put this in my biography of Jesus, all right? Second question, if God is omnipotent and all-knowing, do we truly have free will if he knows us and our path? Is this not predestination? Now, I've been a pastor now for 16 years and I've been a Christian since I was 16. And one of the things Christians love to talk about so much is predestination. And, and for some people, the idea of predestination is very troubling. Uh, for some people, the idea of predestination is very comforting. Um, for some folks, the idea that God gives me all the power and all the choice makes them feel really good. Uh, or for some people, the fact that God holds back some of that and determines what happens, it makes them feel good. So this has been a thing that Christians have talked about a lot, especially since the Reformation. And this question though is a little bit different in the fact of, this is something we call the foreknowledge of God. God knows, God knows all things. He, he, you know, he's omniscient, uh, he, he's all powerful, he's omnipotent. Uh, so God is God, he knows all things. He knows all things before they happen, but is the foreknowledge of God the same thing as God determining what will happen? And, and the way I read the scriptures, I don't think that it is. God knowing what will happen ahead of time is not the same thing as saying that God made it happen. So God knows what will happen, but it's not as though God determined specifically exactly what would happen and how it would happen. Uh, because in the very beginning of Genesis, we are introduced to some really fascinating literature. And the Garden of Eden and the story of Adam and Eve is, is really as relevant as anything that you're gonna read today. And it's something that was penned in the Bronze Age, 1500 BC, which is why I have such a love for the scriptures because when Moses is telling the story of creation and he tells the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and you can have all the trees except for one. One of the things that used to just perturb me as a teenager, I would, it, would just, it would just keep me up at night. It's like, why would God even have to say there was a tree off limits? Why even do that? Why not just make it all legal and we all be good? Why not just say, hey, have fun, enjoy the garden, all of it. What would have been so bad about that? And, and it really, it takes some thought, and it takes some maturity that it took years for me to, to be introduced to, to this line of thinking. But 
When God created the world and God created man and placed his image upon man and he placed us humans here on the earth, he had to, he had to give us free will. Because the thing that God wants most that we're told in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the most important thing that you would love God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what does love require? It requires a choice. To truly love someone, you have to either choose to love or choose not to love. Love is not this, I can't help it, I just love you. Baloney. It's not, I fell in love, I just stumbled into love, just accidentally, wasn't even looking for it, bam, there it was. No, love is a choice. That's what love is. So you either have to choose for love or against love in order for love to actually be a thing. And for a relationship, any relationship at all to exist, you have to either be able to choose for that relationship or against that relationship. Because if you can't choose against that relationship, that's called slavery. That's called tyranny. So don't ever forget this because this has been really helpful for me over the years. In a world that's governed by free will and free choice, not even God gets everything that he wants. That's a big deal because you've heard this before. It's God's will that no one would perish, right? You've heard that verse before. It's God's will that no one would perish. And, And then we're like, well, why does anybody have to perish and go to hell? Because there's this thing called choice. It's God's will that nobody would die without repentance and without faith. But God also had to place choice in our hands because we can't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength unless we can choose to reject him. Adam and Eve required a choice in the garden to either obey or disobey. Otherwise, it would have just been tyranny. It would have been slavery. And here's the good news. God knew every choice you would make and I would make all the stupid, boneheaded, dumb decisions that we would make before we would ever make them. And he decided that he would love us anyway. And then he sent his son to prove his love to us. And then he invites us to love him back. But he puts the choice in our hand. So God knowing something ahead of time is not the same thing as God determining. And here's here's something really cool to think about. God takes all the choices that he knows I'm gonna make and he weaves it into all of his eternal plans and purposes so that at the very end of it all, God ends up right where he wants it to end up. So how does God do that? I don't know. He just does. He's God and he's working all things out according to his own purpose and will. And at the end, it's all gonna get to where God wanted it to get at the same time, but in a way that he did not rob us of our choice or our responsibility. Because otherwise, otherwise, we run into a big theological problem. If I'm not responsible for my choices, who's responsible for my choices? God is responsible for my choices. And if I'm not responsible for my sinful choices, who becomes responsible for my sinful choices? God does. But the problem is God is light and there's no darkness in him whatsoever. God is perfect. He can't be the author of evil. He can't be the author of what is wrong and what is bad. So there has to be personal responsibility. So God knowing ahead of time is not the same thing as God making it happen ahead of time. But at the same time, you can trust that it's all gonna end up where God wanted it to end up to begin with. And that leaves us with peace, that leaves us with joy, and that leaves us with a lack of anxiety about the way that things are happening. Look around the world, God knows. And as crazy and as wild as it might seem, as uncontrolled as what it might appear to be, I promise you, not because I'm promising you, but God promised us that it's all gonna end up where he wants it to end up. 
the way he wants it to get there. Because his plan is good, his plan is right, his plan is perfect. So, great question. Uh, Next question. How can faith be reasonable when there is so much trauma that affects us? And, and I think that this person, this person actually put in parentheses, you know, things like uh, abuse or addiction or injustice and, and those types of things. And, and there were a few questions along these lines. And just so you know, we didn't take out any... We didn't take out any of the questions like, oh my God, that's too hard or that's too whatever. If it had to do with the topic at hand, we really wanted, we wanted to hit as many as possible. So we tried to just file them under the big headings. But, but I think what is at the heart of this question is, is injustice. How can faith be reasonable when there's so much trauma, so much pain? Uh, you know, kind of the age old question. How can, you know, God be good if there's so much bad? So here's what I would say if, if you were the person who asked this. I would say, remember what is at the heart of our faith as Christians. At the heart of our faith as Christians is an act of injustice. Matter of fact, the greatest act of injustice in the history of the world as Christians, we believe happened to a man who lived a perfect life, but yet he was crucified as an enemy of the state and of his church. He suffered horribly, though he had done nothing wrong. You wanna talk about injustice. Out of injustice came the Christian faith, that Jesus died a death of injustice, something that was not deserved something that he did not ask for, something that should not have happened to him. But right there in the middle of all of that injustice comes the Christian faith. So Christianity doesn't ignore injustice and we don't pretend that injustice doesn't happen or that something should be done about injustice. We just acknowledge the fact that this world has injustice in it. Matter of fact, our savior died as an act of injustice. But out of that injustice, God brought good. Out of that injustice, God was able to redeem it. You know, fix your eyes upon Jesus is what the Hebrew writer said. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God on high. That Jesus, in his moment of injustice, chose to believe the heart of his heavenly father, that the heart of his heavenly father could redeem this, that on the other side of this ash was beauty, on the other side of this death was life, on the other side of this darkness was life, that for the joy that was set before him, he was able to look beyond the momentary injustice and believe that God was gonna redeem it, that he was able to endure it because he believed that God was able to bring good out of the bad, and so he, endured the injustice on, you know, for our sake. And, and as Christians, we don't act as though it doesn't exist and, and we don't turn a blind eye to it. But at the same time, how can faith be reasonable when there's so much trauma? Our savior suffered trauma, our, our savior suffered pain. And, and we believe that God is able to redeem the trauma that comes out of this world. And again, back on the other question, in a world of free choice, my choices can hurt you. In a world governed by free choice, as a dad, I can undermine the future of my children by my choices. We don't like to think about it. My choices can take a life. My choices can bring suffering to other people, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually. Our choices have the capacity to harm and to hurt other people. So in a world governed by free choice, There is injustice, there is trauma, there is pain. There's consequences to those choices. But we believe that God is able to bring good out of the bad. We believe that God is able to redeem. And one day we believe that God is gonna make all things right. 
including all the injustice of this this world. So I, I hope that hope that helps. Uh, next question: um, I experience God in creation. Uh, I feel God's presence in worship. I have a hard time though experiencing God in Scripture. Is this normal? And how can I bridge this spiritual gap? And and I, I don't know exactly what what is meant by experience. Sometimes. Uh, you know, we said, man, I really experienced God Sunday, or I really, I really felt God's presence. And, and sometimes it's kind of through an emotional grid, but sometimes it's through some type of ethereal experience that we really can't put our finger on. And, and I think we all kind of know maybe what that feels like. It's like, we're looking up at the night sky and we're just kind of talking to God and we're just overcome by how big and how grand God must be because of how big and grand creation must be. And it's like, it's like an experience. It's like we we're very sensitive to the presence and the power of God in that moment. Or, you know, we're sitting in a worship service and we're standing and we're singing and, and we've got our hands lifted up or, you know, and it's like, man, I really experienced God today. I was just so sensitive to his presence and those lyrics, they, they just, man, they ignited my imagination imagination and it was just so real to me in that moment. And I think what this person is getting at is something that probably a lot of us, you know, have experienced. It's, it's like, I experienced God here, I experienced God there, but when I open up this book, it's like everything just goes dead. It's like, huh, I, I, I don't get anything out of it, you know? And, and, and so to this person, I would say, maybe readjust your expectations, um, you know, and maybe get a plan because just opening up the Bible in the morning and saying, okay, I'm gonna read Jeremiah 14 and the, and the, and the, the subheading is drought, famine, and sword. And you know, it's talking about the wailing of God's people and the cry, you know, you're probably not gonna walk away feeling great, right? You, you just gotta kind of readjust your expectations. But I would say, get a plan and start with one of the four gospels. And I would also suggest reading out loud because you can bring drama to the text, it, it becomes something that's audible to you. So you're just not reading it, but you're speaking it and you're hearing it. And so you're involving more of your senses and, and you can slow down, you can pick up pace and you can stay focused. Uh, I, I would say, try that. I would also say, learn to pray the scriptures. Um, you know, you take something like one of my favorite is uh, Psalms 103. And it's such a great Psalm. And it's one that's so familiar and it's like, you know, praise the Lord my soul and all of my inmost being, praise his holy name. And you could just stop for a moment and say, God, this morning, that's what I'm trying to do. I wanna spend a few moments with you. I want everything in my soul to respond to you. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. God, I, there's so many good things in my life and you just start naming them. And that's experiencing the scripture, you know, who you've redeemed my life from the pit. You've forgiven all of my sins. You've satisfied my desire with good things. And, and you can just talk to God out of the scriptures. And, and that's one way to experience God in the scripture. And then maybe you just, you know, you pick one of the four gospels, maybe John, maybe Mark, because it's, it's quicker and you open up Mark and, you know, I don't have it completely by memory, but Mark, he, he begins with a reference to Isaiah that there was one, a voice crying in the wilderness saying, behold, you know, prepare ye the way of the Lord, the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and just to read that out loud and, and to think about that and, and to imagine that and to see this guy out there lifting up his voice in a day where people didn't want him to lift up his voice and, and, and just try to bring as much of your imagination and your heart and your passion to what you're reading because 
This is such a wonderful book, and you don't have to be a PhD, and you don't have to be a theologian to to read it and get something out of it. I would say the most important thing about this book is to understand the whole story. And if you understand the whole story, you can drop in and find meaning in every part. If I just open up the Bible, say to 2 Chronicles 4, I may not know who that guy is. I may not even know who the king is at that time, but I do know the overall story. And the overall story is that God promised a man by the name of Abraham that he would have a family and that family would become a nation and that nation would become a kingdom. And one day out of that nation and kingdom would become the savior of the world. And I can drop into second Chronicles six and just be reminded that this is the history of a people. This is also the history of God keeping his promise. This is the nation of Israel. And by the time I get to the new Testament out of that nation is going to come the savior of the world, Jesus, the Messiah. And, And so knowing the whole helps us make sense of the parts. But if we don't know the whole, we can drop in. It's like, what in the world does this have to do with anything? It's like the story of Ruth and Boaz. You know, I love that story. I, you know, I'll be your Boaz. Yeah, I can, just, I, can, I can just hear him just looking at her out there. I'll be your Boaz and, and leaving, you know, hands fulls on purpose. And so what in the world has that got to do with this little love story tucked away in, in the Old Testament? But in the middle of this story, we figure out what's going on because Ruth, Ruth ultimately becomes one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. And so she is brought into the Jewish lineage by Boaz. And she becomes one of the grandmothers of David, the king. And it's just this incredible story. So yeah, is it about Ruth and Boaz? Yeah. Is it about this love story? Yeah. Is it about handfuls on purpose? Yeah. But more than that, it's about over here in Bethlehem when it seemed like God was doing nothing at all. God was preserving the line of the Messiah and God was bringing together a man and a woman so that ultimately God could bring the world Jesus. And then it's like, <laughs> I've never liked this book better than I do right now. It's like, I understand the bigger, the bigger thing. So there's that. Uh, let me give you a couple more and then we'll wrap it up. In Genesis, God created after Genesis, in Genesis, after God created the heavens and the earth, Where did the people from Nod come from? Great question, easy answer, they came from Nod. All right, they came from Nod, that's it. So you say, what's this question all about? And again, this may be one of those things like, I've never thought of that, what does the question even mean? When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden and Cain kills Abel, Genesis four, and God says, hey, where's your brother? What do I look like? Do I look like my brother's keeper? It's like, well, his blood's crying out from the ground, you know, I know exactly what you did to your brother. You killed your brother. And then Cain's getting ready to be banished from the place that he is. And he says, God, don't send me away because those people over in Nod, if they see me, they'll kill me. And so the, the question is, where did those people come from? If Adam and Eve have just been kicked out of the garden and now they have, you know, Cain and Abel, where did those people who have urbanized come from? Why is there a city over there? And who are the people in that city? So, you know, it's a, um, this, is, this is an example of a really intriguing question, but there is nothing contingent about this question as it relates to our Christian faith. Uh, it, it is not what I would call the most important of questions or the most important of issues, but it's really interesting to think about. It's like, where did these people come from? And so I'll give you a really quick, there's really lots of ways to look at it, but really two primary ways. One is, if you are a young earth person, 
which means you believe the earth is 6,000 years old and you interpret Genesis 1 and 2 as literal 24-hour periods of time, that the six days of creation were literal 24-hour periods of time as we know them today, then you really only have one option. If that's kind of how you read Genesis and uh, that's a mainstay for a lot of people. People read Genesis uh, like that. Many people do. Um, but you are forced to say that there was obviously a long time between the fact that Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden until this event with Cain and Abel took place enough time so that the offspring of Adam and Eve could begin to interbreed and interbreed and interbreed and the population could grow to the point that now there's a group of people living over here who have urbanized and gathered together in this city. So that's one way, and that is a way to see it. Another way is if you are an old earth person, you believe the earth is you know, billions of years old and the universe is billions of years old, then, then you have a little bit larger landscape to work with. Uh, certain people have speculated, and again, it's all speculation. We don't know for sure, uh, but some have speculated that God may have created more than just Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve were among many people that God created initially, that it just wasn't one specific pair, but maybe God created others as well. Uh, other people have also written books. There's a, there's a book by a guy by the name of Swamidas, and, and he's a geneticist, and he got peer-reviewed by all these non-Christian people, and he tries to take everything that we know about modern-day genetics and, and to try to find out where Genesis and genetics kind of overlap to figure out, okay, here's how we should think about the text. But if you see the earth as being billions of years old and the universe being billions of years old, which is a viable, a viable thing as well, there's also lots of things that could go along with that. So, but at the end, following Jesus is not content on knowing where the people from Nod come from. So remind me, you know, that old story, you know, somebody says, you tell me where the people from Nod come from, I'll get saved and go to heaven. The guy said, well, you're just gonna have to go to hell then because I can't tell you uh, where the people from Nod came from. So uh, that, that's kind of the way that goes. And then maybe one more, let me get one more and we'll, we'll wrap it up. What reasons would you give to someone to believe in God when God feels distant and uncaring? Um, I would also say, pay attention to that word because just because it feels that way doesn't mean it is that way. Uh, don't confuse God's silence with his absence. And, and to know that as Christians, we believe that our circumstances aren't a reflection of how God feels about us. Uh, some of the people who had the greatest faith endured the deepest pain. Um, the first disciples would be a case in point. Um, and besides that, again, at the heart of our faith is a savior who on the cross lifted up his voice and said, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? It felt as though God had turned his back on him. It felt as though God was not there. And so our faith does not run away from the reality of life. It's sometimes the reality of life, it is brutal. It is brutal. It is brutal. But having great faith does not always mean a great life in the sense of it's gonna be easy. Sometimes the people of greatest faith, they pray great prayers and those prayers are not answered the way that they want those prayers answered. To listen to somebody on the internet or television or radio or read their book and it's always like your breakthrough's coming, the best is yet to come. You know, you're gonna get the job, you're gonna get the promotion, it's gonna rain, the blessing's coming, the blessing's coming, the blessing's coming. It's like, you know, that just doesn't sound like my life. And it doesn't sound like a lot of people's life that I know either. It feels good and it makes us feel good about things, but sometimes, you know what? 
The lights go out and they stay out for a while. Sometimes it feels like nobody's in our corner. Sometimes it feels like God goes silent. Sometimes it feels like God goes distant. John the Baptist, he discovered that circumstances can erode our convictions. He was the one who said, behold the Lamb of God. But then when he was in prison and Jesus didn't come see him, he said, well, maybe I should rethink this. Are you the one or should I look for another? Are you really who you say you are? I'm not sure anymore because circumstances are powerful and they can erode at our faith. But, but Joseph, Joseph, I think would be a great example of what this looks like. Hated by his brothers. His death was faked by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was in prison for that crime. He was forgotten time and time and time again, but he never relinquished his faith in God. He didn't allow his circumstances to rob him of his faith. And, and sometimes I think when we wanna give up our faith because of what we've experienced in life, it's just because we don't experience, we don't understand faith as it really is. We were sold a, a false bill of goods to say, hey, if you just have faith, it's, it's gonna work out. Well, ultimately it will all work out, but right now, right in front of you, tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now, it may not seem like it worked out the way that you wanted it to, but it will work out the way that God wanted it to. And then one day, one day, as I believe, when the world is made new, the new heaven and the new earth, you know, we're not gonna go up into heaven and you know, people think we're gonna just float on clouds and play harps and sing and hum and there's gonna be this constant soundtrack in the background. And I'd listen to that as a kid, I'm like, I don't kind of feel like Hank, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I'm not sure I wanna go. I mean, if, 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 it's, if it's like that, I'm, I, I, I don't know. It sounds not enticing to me. I, I don't know. I, the, I, I can't wait to get out of church on Sunday. I can't imagine if it's all one big church service up there in glory somewhere that I'm, I'm gonna, I don't know what I'll do. I'm gonna ask, you know, so, but we were sold this idea of what, what the world to come looks like, but when the new world to come, comes and we live upon this earth and that's where we're going to spend eternity is here on this earth it's going to be remade and we're going to do all the things that we do now there's going to be art and there's going to be literature and there's going to be there's going to be music and there's going to be food and there's going to be drink and there's going to be friendship and there's going to be all of these wonderful things that makes life life and makes goodness good and then in that day we'll be able to look back at the tapestry of what God was doing and we'll know perfectly that what happened was good, though in that moment, in our finite human experience, it didn't feel good and it didn't look right. But one day we believe as Christians, every wrong will be made right and everything that was bad, there will be good and redemption will come out of it. But between now and then, it's this idea of knowing that Jesus knows how you feel. He was tempted in all points, even as we are. He knows our pain. He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows the pain of betrayal, Judas. He knows the pain of injustice, the cross. He knows the pain of not being believed. He knows the pain of people looking at you suspiciously. He knows the pain of rejection. He knows all of that. He gets it. He can relate to you. He can relate to me. And we tell him, we talk to him, we just be honest. God. My guts are ripping out right now. I don't get this, I don't like it. And he's big enough to handle it. And he says, tell me how you feel, tell me how you think, because I understand, I know it. But yet we put our ultimate trust in the fact that God 
one day we'll make it all right. And that is our ultimate hope. We had, we had a few more questions and, and maybe, maybe we'll put some of those on social media. But next week, next week, I'm coming back and I'm gonna talk about the New Testament, why we even believe it, how we got it. How did we get the Bible? How did we get the New Testament? And should we even trust it? What reasons do we have to even trust the record that we have of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And then the week after that, we're talking about the resurrection. So the next two weeks would be great weeks to invite somebody to come be your guest. And if for no other reason, I know it's like, man, I prefer a sermon. This may not feel important. It may not look important, but having a time for us to ask questions and try to spend some time answering it is a really big deal because a lot of us grew up in churches where questions were not invited, they were not encouraged. And the next generation, the next generation's faith is worth spending some time on things like this and letting people know it's okay to have questions about the scripture. It's okay to have questions about life and God. And it's good to have these conversations. It's healthy to have these conversations because we'll all be better for it. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray for us and then we're gonna be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for your word and your promises. And God, thank you so much that we can spend some time and talk about these things. And, and Lord, I know that the answers were not perfect and that they were not complete, but, but God, it's just good to begin thinking and it's, it's good to just talk about these things so that we can, God, do the work of, of understanding that our faith is reasonable, that it does require thought. And, and God, I just pray that you'd bless the people of our church, our families. I pray, God, that you would give them a great week this week. And I pray, Father, that there'll be somebody in their life that they can invite and bring next week uh, as we talk about the two most important weeks in this series. And uh, I pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, thank you for being here today. We'll see you back next week.